last years of his life, Mr. Herbert Armstrong said, I don't think half of you get it. We're talking 40 years ago when he was making statements such as that. And he even said, I think only 10% of you get it. And my guess is that few believed what he was saying, not that we didn't uh, believe that we, in other words, we didn't think he was lying, but at the same time, I think a lot of people thought, well, he's old and he's just not uh, uh, quite in touch with things because we could not imagine that someone sitting next to us or in front of us or our best friend would fall away from the truth. He gave sermon after sermon about the two trees, and he would say that I'm giving you something you haven't heard before. And yet, he really did most of the time. It would be the basic message, and then he would add something to it, which is the way that he often spoke when he was understanding something new. He would give repetition, but he always had something to add to it. So I don't think that most people thought of him as being senile, but perhaps they thought of him as being out of touch. But in retrospect, he was absolutely on target. The Worldwide Church of God at that time had over 150,000 people attending the Feast of Tabernacles. Today it's a fraction of that number. How did Mr. Armstrong know this? And are there lessons for us to learn? How could he know? It appeared to many that he was out of touch, as I said. How could he know the state of the church? His eyesight was going. His hearing was poor. And his interaction with others became limited as he got up into 90 years of age thereabout. But his mind was sharp, as I saw in 1983 in a semi-private occasion. He had attended our summer education program at Orr, Minnesota to visit it. And after uh, preaching that day, he went over to one of the cabins where Dr. Nelson, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't Dr. Nelson, it was another camp director at the time, but the camp director's cabin, and there were six or eight of us there and asking questions and talking with him, and he did most of the speaking, and he certainly was not senile. His mind was still very sharp, very good, and frankly, it was very much in touch with what was happening in the church far more than we might have realized. Was he smarter than the rest of us? Well, I'm sure he was smarter than some of us, but maybe not everybody. But how did he know? How did he know what would happen to the church after he was gone? Well, there are a couple reasons why he knew. First of all, Scripture tells us that God reveals things to his leaders. Let's just notice a very familiar passage, one that probably many of you have memorized, Acts, I'm sorry, Amos, the third chapter. Amos 3 and verse 7. And this is something that if we really believe the Bible, we should recognize that it is true. It says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. Now, Mr. Armstrong was not a prophet. He certainly said he was not. I think that we took him at his word on that. Nevertheless, he was a servant of God. 
And sometimes God does reveal things to his servants, sometimes that they don't even realize. Sometimes sermons are given by ministers that they don't even realize how they are fitting in with some situation, some person. Not necessarily targeting someone, but how many times have we said, I I needed that message, it was like it was targeted for me, even though we know is a fact that the minister knew nothing about a situation. I remember one time I was in a pretty foul attitude toward my, my parents. Uh, they didn't understand the truth, and I had rather independent attitude at that point in time. Didn't hardly need them. A little bit upset at my sister as well. And I was hit about three times within a 24-hour period One was a sermonette, one was a counseling that I had with a minister, and I forget what the third one was. But it's kind of like God was saying, straighten up, fella. And I recognized that there was something there. None of those people really knew uh, what I was thinking, but there were things that came out in those circumstances. In Matthew 16, Matthew 16 we read that Jesus spoke of Peter in a way and said that God had revealed something to Peter. Now, Peter had not received the Holy Spirit as yet. He was still carnal in many respects. But here in verse 16 of Matthew 16, Simon Peter answered and said, uh, answering the question of who do you say that I am, He said, you are the Christ, the anointed one, in other words, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. God does reveal things to his servants, to his people. And I suppose in in every respect, he reveals certain things to each of us and in various circumstances, when we need to know something. Does this mean that God reveals everything to his servants? Some might say, well, how come God didn't reveal to Mr. Armstrong who should follow him? Why did he point an individual who was disloyal toward God and toward, toward Mr. Armstrong, but mostly toward God, because that's the, what, what really counted? Well, back in Second Kings 4... We read an example here that one of God's prophets, one that God had revealed many things to, in a very direct way, much more so than we find him revealing to us today in Second Kings 4 and verse 27. We read here, I'll, I'll begin a little bit earlier. This was Elisha, and he had stayed with this uh, woman, her family, her household, and had prayed for God to give her a son because she was without children. And this son died. And so the woman called for Elisha. And in verse 24, she she saddled a donkey and said to her servant, Drive and go forward. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she was in haste, and so she departed and went to the man of God. 
at Mount Carmel. Now we read from the context, it was clearly Elisha. So it was when the man of God saw her afar off that he said to his servant Gehazi, Look, the Shunammite woman, please run and meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is it well with your husband? Is it well with the, the child? And she answered it as well. Now when she came to the man of God at the hill, she caught him by the feet, but Gehazi came near to push her away. But the man of God said, Let her alone, for her soul is in deep distress, and the Eternal has hidden it from me and has not told me. So in this particular case, while God had used Elisha in very powerful ways, revealing things to him, in this particular case, God had not revealed what the problem was. He didn't know why she was coming. And yet when we read the whole account or the whole life there of Elisha, uh, he saw things that God clearly had revealed to him, including the time when Gehazi went back and took a, uh, some, some uh, presents from an individual who had come for healing, and, and Elisha had healed the man, but at the same time, he said, no, I don't want any presents from you. And Gehazi then said, well, he lied about it and said, yes, you know, he, he will take something from you. And Elisha knew about that. God had revealed that to him. But in this particular case, God had not. And so we find that God sometimes reveals things to his servants and sometimes he does not. Now, in the case of the modern era of the church of God, we find that God certainly had revealed one way or the other. doesn't really matter how. But God had revealed or made clear to Mr. Armstrong that when he was gone, or even before he was gone, that many of the people that attended the services really didn't get it. They didn't really comprehend the message. He saw that. So God gave the church a warning. Then he allowed the church to be tested to see whether we took that warning to heart. And one of the warnings was that he saw too much Protestantism entering into the thinking of God's people. And that's exactly what happened after his death. His successor and others took the church right back into general Protestantism, away from the truth of the Scriptures. And by the way, we have a wonderful book on the subject by Dr. Roderick C. Meredith on the Protestant Reformation. And if you don't have that, then be sure to get a copy of that and read it, because it is an eye-opener when you realize that it isn't just Catholicism, but Protestantism that is flawed terribly so. And the people who began the Protestant Reformation were terribly flawed in their thinking and in what they were teaching. The plain truth about the Protestant Reformation, be sure to get that if you haven't, and be sure to read it. It's, a, it's the one book that we have in the sense that it's more than a booklet. It's really a small book that was written by Dr. Meredith. But God allowed the church to be tested. Now, as with Christ, Mr. Armstrong also knew the Scriptures. He knew the pattern of Scripture, the pattern of man's behavior. 
In John, the second chapter, we read a situation here. We, we know that there were times when the people wanted to make Jesus a king, a prophet, a king. They wanted, they, they, they looked up to him. He had to flee that on more than one occasion. But at the same time, we know that the people could turn around very quickly and want to stone him, almost in the same breath. They want to make him a king, and then they want to stone him because he said something that was controversial or something that they did not go along with. But here in John, the second chapter, it tells us in verse 23, Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Notice, they believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. Now, did Jesus allow that thought to be carried away in his mind? He says, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men and had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. He understood human nature. And Mr. Armstrong understood human nature. And he knew the pattern of man's behavior as he read the scriptures. There's so much here in the Old Testament, especially. But let's notice over in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, that God wants us to learn from these examples of what happened in the Old Testament. He goes on to show that it was Jesus Christ was the rock that followed them. Notice verse 4, after saying they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and the sea and ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Verse 4, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So the rock that they followed was Christ, or that he followed them. Verse 5, but with most of them God was not well pleased for their... Their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, these things became examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted and not do other things that he describes there. And then in verse 11, he says, Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So all the things that we read of there, are for our admonition. They are to teach us lessons, important lessons, that we would do well not to forget. And yet, as much time as we spent on those lessons during the days of unleavened bread, and at other times, it's remarkable how many people fell away from the truth. And they set up a different day for their feasts, the eighth month, just like they did at the time of Jeroboam. They went back into other things and first of all just changed the dates a little bit and then pretty soon abandoned them and took up with heathen days which replaced the days that God had set aside. They missed the lessons that God had given. Let's just notice a couple examples or a few examples. We don't have time to cover all of the examples because we would have to read the entirety of the book of Joshua if we really wanted to, to go through it. And we'd have to read, you know, the kings, and we'd have to read basically the Old Testament. But let's notice over in Exodus, 
the 19th chapter, when God made the covenant with Israel. We'll begin in verse 3. It says, And Moses went up to God, and the Eternal called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So Moses came and he called for the elders of the people, and he laid before them all these words which the Eternal commanded him. Now notice verse 8. Then all the people answered together and said, All that the Eternal has spoken we will do. So Moses brought back the word of the people to the eternal. And so then he was told them to make themselves ready. God uh, told Moses to tell the people to get ready for the third day. He would uh, speak with them. And then we have the giving of the Ten Commandments, the pyrotechnic display that took place there, a powerful uh, lesson for them as he thundered those commandments, so much so that they said, oh, we don't want to hear any more. Moses, you go up and you get the word and you can relate it to us. We can't stand to hear God's voice anymore. They were, they were frightened by it all, the power of it. And yet what happened? Well, in chapter 32, we find that it didn't, it didn't take very long. It only took 40 days, roughly speaking, 40 days, actually not even 40 days. Because before the 40 days were ended when Moses had been up in the mountain, before he came back down, they already had made a golden calf. They already had their feast and were celebrating it and were dancing in a lewd way. They fell away in chapter 32, verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron, and they said to him, Come, make us gods, or a god, that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened, what's become of him. So in less than 40 days, about a month's time, they already turned away from God. It certainly did not take them very long. After 40 years in the wilderness, we read in Deuteronomy, the 29th chapter, Deuteronomy 29, right before there to go into the promised land. This is right at the end of the, the 40 years. We read that another covenant was made with Israel, kind of a reaffirming of the covenant. Deuteronomy 29, and we'll notice uh, verse 9. Well, actually, let me go back a little bit. Let me start in verse 1. It says, These are the words of the covenant which the Lord commanded Moses to make, with the children of Israel in the land of Moab. So this is a different covenant. It's a renewing of the covenant, you might say, besides the covenant which he made with them in Horeb. In verse 4, he says, Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. Remember what it says back in the fifth chapter of Deuteronomy. Now, this was all written in 
recorded with, within just a matter of, of months before, you know, a couple months before they went into the promised land. And he says, oh, that they had a heart in them, such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments always, that it might be well with them and with their children forever. God wanted them to keep the covenant because it would be good for them. It would benefit them. It would benefit their families. And here in verse 4 of chapter 29, this is 40 years later, he says, Yet the Lord has not given you a heart to perceive and eyes to see and ears to hear to this very day. Your clothes have not worn out and your sandals have not worn out on your feet. You've not, you have not eaten bread nor have you drunk wine or similar drink that you may know that the Lord, your, that I am the Lord your God. And then he talks about Sion, king of Heshbon, and Og, king of uh, Bashan, and how they came out and God fought for them. And then in verse 9 it says, Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them that you may prosper in all that you do. And so he then reiterates what he expected of them. He says, All of you, verse 10, stand today before the Lord your God, your leaders, your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones and your wives, also the stranger who is in your camp, from the one who cuts your wood to the one who draws your water, that you may enter into covenant with the eternal your God and into his oath, which the eternal your God makes with you today, that he may establish you be today as a people for himself, and that he may be to you, be God to you just as he has spoken to you, and just as he has sworn to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I make this covenant, verse 14, and this oath, not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not here with us today. So he goes on uh, explaining a little bit more than down in verse 18, so that there may not be among you Man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away today from the eternal our God to go and serve the gods of these nations. Notice the latter part of verse 18, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. But I think that's rather interesting that he introduces that topic there, that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. Because God knew that bitterness, animosity, and hatred can destroy a people. And so it may, verse 19, not happen when he hears the words of this curse, that he blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace even though I follow the dictates of my heart. So this is what man does. He follows the dictates of his heart, and yet God was making that covenant with them that they would not do so. But what else do we read here at the end of Deuteronomy? Notice the 31st chapter and verse 16. Deuteronomy 31:16. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, you will rest with your fathers, and this people will rise and play the harlot with the gods of the foreigners of the land, where they go to be among them. And they will forsake me and break my covenant, which I have made with them. So God told Moses that after you rest, after you're dead, they'll go back and they'll 
make covenants with the people of the land. They'll follow the examples of them. They'll fall back into idolatry, into forsaking my laws and my ways. And we have the entirety of the book of Judges that really proves that. For a while, they did what was right in the book of Joshua. We see that they stayed on track during the days of Joshua. But we have the book of Judges to show that they time and time and time again fell back into idolatry. And then when they cried out to God, God gave them a savior. He gave them a judge to rise up, a hero who would rescue them from their troubles. And then that individual would die and they would drift back into idolatry. In the book of Judges, it was not just a straight line there, but there were different parts of Judah and Israel, and different judges at different times, different parts. But the pattern is still the same, that whether it was up in the north or the east or the south, the people would fall back into idolatry, and God would have to rescue them. We have another example, very interesting example, in the book of Jeremiah. It really shows us the nature of man. Jeremiah, the 42nd chapter. Judah has now gone into captivity. And Nebuchadnezzar allowed a certain number of people to stay behind, to take care of the land, the poor of the land. And he put an individual over the people, a governor as it were, and a fellow by the name of Ishmael came along and, and killed him. And this was not a good thing. When the king puts somebody over the land and somebody assassinates the one he put there, uh, it's not a good thing. And so in chapter 42, in verse 1, it says, All the captains of the forces, Johanan, the son of Korea, Jezaniah, the son of Hoshea, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near. And they said to Jeremiah, they approached Jeremiah the prophet, and said, Please let our petition be acceptable to you, and pray for us to the eternal your God for all this remnant, since we are left but a few of many, as you can see. So they were just a very small remnant that was left in the land. The rest have been carried off to captivity. That the Lord your God may show us the way in which we should walk and the thing we should do. We want to know, what should we do? How should we walk? Where should we go? We're in a bad strait here. The leader that the king put over us has been assassinated. And now we don't really know what to do. And Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard, indeed, I will pray to the eternal your God according to your words. And it shall be that whatever the Lord answers you, I will declare to you, I will keep nothing back from you. So they said, verse 5, to Jeremiah, Let the eternal be a true and faithful witness between us, if we do not do according to everything which the eternal your God sends us by you, whether it be pleasing or displeasing, we will obey the voice of the eternal our God to whom we send you, that it may be well with us when we obey the voice of the eternal our God. Now that comes across as being as sincere as it could possibly be. And so often we find that people are very sincere about a lot of things. 
But time changes things. And it doesn't take much time. Now, God could have given Jeremiah the answer immediately. But as in the case of Moses, took a few days, about a month or thereabouts, before they <clears throat> turned away. Here, it didn't even take that long. It says in verse 7, it happened after 10 days, just 10 days, a mere 10 days from their request, that the word of the Eternal came to Jeremiah. And he called Johanan the son of Korea and all the captains of the forces and the people and so forth, and said to them, verse 9, Thus says the Eternal, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me, you sent me there to present your petition before him. If you will still remain in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down, and I will plant you and not pluck you up. For I relent concerning the disaster that I have brought upon you. But he said, Do not be afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. So there was fear that was involved there. But he said, Don't be afraid of the king of Babylon. Do not be afraid of him, says the Eternal, for I will... For I am with you to save you and deliver you from his hand. And I will show you mercy and he may have, that he may have mercy on you and cause you to return to your own land. But if you say, verse 13, we will not dwell in the land, disobeying the voice of the eternal your God, saying, no, but we will go to the land of Egypt where we shall see no war, nor hear the sound of the trumpet, in other words, warfare, nor be hungry for bread, there was probably some concern there. How are we going to eat? The land's been devastated here. Nor be hungry for bread, and there we will dwell. Then hear now the word of the Eternal, O remnant of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, If you wholly set your faces to enter Egypt and go to dwell there, then it shall be that the sword which you feared shall overtake you there in the land of Egypt. And the famine of which you were afraid shall follow close after you in Egypt, and there you shall die. So Jeremiah gives them the message from God, and he pleads with them to listen and to obey. Chapter 43, what was their response? Now it happened when Jeremiah had stopped speaking to all the people, all the words of the Eternal their God, for which the Eternal their God had sent him to them, all these words that Azariah and these other individuals who were there said to him, You speak falsely. The eternal our God has not sent you to say, Do not go to Egypt to dwell there. Now, what was their excuse? They said, Well, your servant Barak has turned your head. This didn't come from God. It came from Barak or Baruch, however you would pronounce it. It says, Baruch, the son of Neriah, has set you against us to deliver us into the hand of the Chaldeans that they may put to death or carry us away captive to Babylon. So Johanan, the son of Korea, and all the captains of the forces and all the people would not obey the voice of the Eternal to remain in the land of Judea. So they came to Jeremiah, and they said, Jeremiah, we know you have something, an end with God. We know that God works with you. So go to him and ask, what should we do? And whether we like it or not, we're going to obey. And ten days later, he comes back with a message, and they totally reject it. They come up with a rationalization that, well, 
Baruch has, has influenced you, we know it wasn't God. We have another example. And it's so interesting how quickly people turn away. This may have been a little bit longer, but back in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the ninth chapter. And in verse 38. After describing their history, going through their history and showing how Judah had sinned time and again. These were not, this was not the house of Israel, but the house of Judah that had now returned to Judea, where they had been taken from in captivity, but now they had come back a number of years earlier. It wasn't uh, immediately that they'd come back. Uh, they, they came back somewhere around, what, 536, 37, 38 in that time frame. This is down about, what, uh, four, 32 or something like that. So a number of years had, had uh, taken place, uh, gone by. But they went through their history, showed how they had not been faithful. And then in verse 38 it says, And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. And then it lists the names of many of these individuals who sealed this covenant, that put their names on it kind of like our Constitution, signing our Constitution. John Hancock being the first there, I guess. And then the others signing on. It says those who placed their seal on the document were Nehemiah, the governor, and uh, these various other individuals, and it lists them, and the ones that were Levites and so forth. It goes all the way down to verse 27 from verse 1 through verse 27, all these different people that sealed it. But then in verse 28, it says, Now the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, and Nethanim, and all those who had separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, everyone who had knowledge and understanding, these joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the eternal our Lord, our, uh, Lord and his ordinances and his statutes. Now, when you read through the remainder of the chapter, you find that there were three basic points to the covenant that they made with God. The first one is in verse 30. It says, We would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters for our sons. They were not to intermingle with the peoples of the land who had different values, different religions, different gods. And God knew that that would be a disaster. It was from the time they entered the promised land. And it still was the same way now after many years of uh, captivity and coming back. The second point was, if the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we would forego the seventh year's produce and exacting every debt. So I guess you could say, well, that's a little bit more just the exacting of debts. That's a, another one. That's kind of a, I won't say it's minor, but uh, the, the point is that they would not violate the Sabbath. Now, 
The third one, we read down in verse 37, to bring the first fruits of our dough, our offerings, the fruit from all kinds of trees, the new wine, the oil. And uh, it says, to bring the tithe of our land to the Levites, for the Levites should receive the tithes in all their farming communities. And the priests and the descendants of Aaron shall be with the Levites uh, when the Levites receive tithes. And Levites then would bring that up to the storehouse, not just to store away forever, but in other words, to the priests. We will not, the latter part of verse 39, we will not neglect the house of our God. So there were three stipulations to the covenant that they made with Jeremiah and with God at that time. It was really with God, but uh, by the help of Jeremiah, they made that covenant. The 11th chapter talks about the fact that Jerusalem was pretty sparsely populated and they wanted to uh, bring people back to Jerusalem. And the 12th chapter, uh, they dedicated the wall and it talks about temple responsibilities and the singers and all that. Then we get to the 13th chapter. It says, On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God uh, because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. So it was when they heard the law that they, they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. They said, before this, Eliashib the priest, having authority over the storerooms, that's where they stored the, the tithes and so forth, of the house of our God was allied with Tobiah. That was an individual that was, I guess we would call him a Samaritan. He was there, had been brought back to uh, his lineage, his, his family. And he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense and so forth, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and offerings for the priests. Verse 6, but during all this time I had, not, uh, I had not been in Jerusalem. I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days I obtained relief or leave from the king, and I came back to Jerusalem. And so he finds this individual, Tobiah, is living there in the, the temple, he should not have been, but Eliashib had allowed him to do so, prepared a room for him in the house of God. And verse 8, it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all his household goods, the household goods of Tobiah, out of the room, and I commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offerings and the frankincense. So in other words, he threw everything out of uh, this, this man's possessions, and verse 10, he also realized that the portion for the Levites had not been given them. In other words, they had made a covenant with God some years earlier that they would take care of the Levites and take care of the matters involving the, the temple and the service there. And uh, they had neglected those. So I contended, verse 11, with the rulers and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? So that was one of the stipulations of the covenant, that they would not neglect the house of God. And that's exactly what they did. 
And so they began to bring back, verse 12, all Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse. And then he pointed faithful people overseeing it. He says, verse 14, Remember me, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for its service. Then in verse 15, we find a second stipulation that had been violated. It says, In those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. Now, this is something that some people misunderstand a little bit here. Uh, is it wrong to eat a meal on the Sabbath? Uh, it's a very different situation. And what we find here is they were carrying on commerce. They were doing their weekly shopping on the Sabbath. They brought in their wares, as it were, all of the things there. Uh, they would do their, their grocery shopping on the Sabbath because they were bringing you know, grapes and figs and fish and all these different things that they were bringing there. This was a day of commerce for them. It was not eating a meal. It was taking the Sabbath to an extreme that was not intended. And so he says, I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre dwelt there also who brought in fish and all kinds of goods, notice all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. So we shouldn't do our normal shopping on the Sabbath. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, What evil thing is that you are doing by which you profane the Sabbath day? He said, didn't our fathers do the same? And look what wrath came upon them as a result of it. So it was that he set up individuals to guard the gates of the city of Jerusalem. And some merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares, verse 20, lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. And I warned them and said, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I'll lay hands on you. And he wasn't talking about ordaining them. Yeah, I always love uh, Nehemiah. He was one, he was a John Wayne type, you know. And he says, from that time so they, on they came no more on the Sabbath day. And then he told the Levites to take care of their responsibilities and guard the gates on the, that day. So that was the second provision that they violated. Marrying outside of Israel and then breaking the Sabbath in this way. And then verse 23, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself here. The first one was, was not uh, saving up their tithes, not taking care of the temple. They're robbing from God in essence. And then we find the Sabbath. And then in verse 23, we find the third one. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah but spoke according to the language of one of the other people. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck them, struck some of them, and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, You shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor shall you uh, take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. You, you try to, to picture this. Um, it kind of reminds me we have a, a skit at our summer camp, and it's a, I, I can't go through all of it, but it's a, it's a, a counselor coming up and trying to uh, tell everybody to go back to their dorms 
uh, it, this is the way that we don't want. It's a camp that we don't have. And, and uh, whoever the counselor is, you know, grabs somebody by the ear and pushes them off and kicks the other one and gets them off back to, to where they're supposed to go. And it's kind of like Nehemiah. He must have, you know, plucked their hair out and grabbed them by the hair and uh, corrected them. He said, did not Solomon, verse 26, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him, who was beloved of his God, and God made them, made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. So we find they made a, a, a covenant with God that they would pay their tithes and take care of the religious aspects of the nation, that uh, they would keep the Sabbath and the holy days holy, and that they would uh, not intermarry amongst the pagan people of that area, and they violated every single one of them. This is a pattern of Scripture. This is how Mr. Armstrong, no doubt, understood when he understood human nature and the way people are, this same pattern we've seen in the church of God. It's that way. When Mr. Armstrong was up in the Northwest, he started a new congregation, turned over to somebody else, and he'd go off in a different direction. That's why he started Ambassador College. He could see the tendency of human nature to rationalize around what was right and to go in a different direction. We have the, the scriptures, of course, that tell us, for example, in the book of Jude, or the letter of Jude in verses 3 and 4, Jude said, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. This is not talking about going back to the religion of the 1800s. This is talking about going back to the faith of Christ and the apostles. Because this was the age in which he was living. And he's saying, you've already turned away. He said, go back. He said, I had to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Verse 4, for certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. They turn grace into uh, lewdness, in other words, to, to violate the law of God. The whole thing that is the big controversy over the writings of the Apostle Paul, that the law is done away with. Well, at least nine of the ten laws are done away with. I'm sorry, nine of the ten laws are, are still there, but the one is, is gone. And, you know, not bad, God. You got nine out of ten right. And so they were already turning the grace of God into lewdness and lawlessness. That was in Jude's day. That was in the first century. We also have Acts, the 20th chapter, where the Apostle Paul saw this pattern in Scripture, no doubt, as well as the fact that God must have opened, opened his mind to understand it. In Acts, the 20th chapter... He says in verse 27, I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. He's talking to the elders. 
from Ephesus. He was talking to the ministry there. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, verse 29, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. So even amongst you, ordained men, he says, I know that some of you will rise up. You'll get the big head. You'll have the desire to go your own way. And you'll draw away disciples after yourself. Now, do we think that they all stopped keeping the Sabbath and holy days immediately? Or even at all? No, they were just dividing the flock in that way. It says, therefore, verse 31, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So he warned them for three years that this was a tendency of things that could happen. Now, does this mean that every time a leader does die, that the church goes into apostasy or the nation goes into apostasy every time a leader dies? Well, of course not, not at all. We have the example of Joshua, and Joshua followed Moses. He followed his example. He did what God told him to do. Was he without mistakes? No. He made a mistake of making a covenant with that that uh, group that uh, really deceived them without seeking God. And he made that mistake. But God was working with him, and Joshua was faithful. And not only Joshua, but we read in Joshua 24 and verse 31 that those who lived on beyond Joshua, who had seen these things, also remained faithful. Joshua 24 and verse 31. So this was a matter of decades that the nation pretty much stayed on track as much as the nation you know, ever did. But here in verse 31... He says, Israel served the Eternal all the days of Joshua. I was trying to look up quickly how old Joshua was. He, he was 110 when he died. But how old was he when Moses came back or came to Egypt? He, Moses was 80. And Joshua, no doubt, was a young man at the time. So uh, Joshua continued on for a number of years, probably several decades after Moses. And then there were other elders or leaders who also followed in the footsteps of Joshua. So there were times when people did remain faithful and loyal because of the leaders they had. But the overall pattern is one of apostasy, of going back into Satan's religious ideas and ways and approaches. So what are the lessons for us today? Let's draw a couple of quick lessons here. First of all, it is human nature to become distracted and to justify disobedience. We have Aaron, and he justified what he did. Well, you know the people. And he said, really, I, I didn't do much. I just took the gold and I threw it in the fire and out came a calf. Now, that's about the lamest excuse that you could ever make. But that's what he did. 
we have the answer to the situation with Jeremiah. No, Jeremiah, God didn't tell you that. It was Baruch. Again, pretty lame, but people have to justify their actions. And so they come up with excuses of every sort to justify what they really want to do. The people wanted to stay there. I'm sorry, they wanted to go down to Egypt. They didn't want to stay there. And so after 10 days, as we read there, and Jeremiah comes back with the answer, they'd already changed their mind about following whatever he said. Proverbs 14:12 tells us there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. That's the old King James. It seems right to a man. And then it's repeated in 16:25, Proverbs 16:25, and that's something that we used to read a lot. We understood that. We often bring that out when we're talking about baptism to a person. Because when we repent, we don't just repent of certain deeds we've done. We must come to repent of our very way of thinking, of who we are as human beings. And sadly, too many people have not done that down through the years. How else could we understand the falling away of of people? So many people fall away. And it isn't always just all at once. It's just a continual dribble of people. You have new people come along and you have other people They follow this person or that person or they just follow themselves out. They find some doctrine that they can find fault with. It's usually a a twiggy area of some sort. Some new idea that they have. Some gift from God that uh, the church won't accept. And they go their own way. In Romans, the 8th chapter, the Apostle Paul says the carnal mind is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. We have to understand our own human nature. This is talking about us. The nature that we start out with, hopefully that carnal nature is being uh, uh, subjected or subjugated to God's nature. But this is, this is something that can rise up. It's kind of like trying to hold a ball down in a swimming pool. And if it's small enough, you can hold it down for a while. But as soon as your arms get tired or you lit it up, it pops back up again. And our nature is that way. In 1 John, the second chapter, 1 John, this is something that that takes so many out of, away from the truth. It isn't just lusting after other things as some people have done. Going back into the world, wanting to have the things of this world, wanting to not have to pray and study and draw close to God constantly. But it says here in 1 John, the second chapter, and verse 9, He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Verse 11, but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. There are things that blind our eyes from the truth. And very clearly, hatred is one of them. 
How many people over the years have left the church because they got into some squabble with someone else? Oftentimes a minister. Well, he didn't treat me right, or he corrected me, or, or whatever it might be. But sometimes it's just another church member. Well, I'm not going to go to church where that person is. It blinds the eyes to seeing what is the big issue. And the end result is that people do things that they shouldn't do. They make decisions, foolish decisions, because their eyes are blinded. Is this not really what it says there in Hebrews 12th chapter, Hebrews 12? Come back to something that we read earlier from the Old Testament. He says in verse 14, Hebrews 12, 14, he says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Now, that's a pretty good mouthful. Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. So we are to pursue peace. It doesn't mean that you can be at peace with every, everyone. Some people are not going to be at peace with you. But when we get into attitudes toward others, what happens is that we become blinded because we have that hatred or that animosity, and we stop seeing rationally. He says, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. And then he describes, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. There are people who have the opportunity to know the truth and actually have been part of the truth, and then they get a burr under their saddle over something, and the end result is that they are willing to sell their birthright for a morsel of food, just like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. For you know that afterward he wanted to inherit the blessing. He wanted the blessing, but he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. It's not talking about... And when it says no place for repentance, in other words, no place for turning back the decision, because if you go back to Genesis 17 and uh, what about verse 3, or anyway, you can read that there in Genesis uh, 27. He sought it with tears. He sought the, the blessing with tears in his eyes. He found no way to turn it backward. It wasn't that he was wanting to repent himself. He wanted the decision to be changed. And that becomes clear when you read it from the original. Although here it could be understood differently if, if, you, uh, if you're not familiar with the original. For you know that afterward he wanted to inherit the blessing. That's what he wanted. But he was rejected. And he found no place for repentance, for turning it back though he sought it diligently with tears. He sought the, the blessing with tears. You know, some people have allowed themselves a root of bitterness. Others have allowed themselves to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. They want to be a part of the world. It's interesting that Israel, when you read a number of the scriptures, it wasn't just that they, that they went out and, and served Baal only although they did plenty of that. But in reality, they wanted God. They wanted the eternal. They wanted Yahweh. But they also wanted the things of this world. 
the religions of this world. And that's really what we find today. We, we don't have too many people that go off and, and start bowing down to idols, physical idols. But just like ancient Israel, they want God's way, but they want it their way. They want it, they want to be part of the world. Like one young man said in a speech in Spokesman Club, he, he had to realize that he had one foot in the church, one foot in the world, and he thought he just had a little foot, you know, dabbling in the world when he realized that that's where his foot was and he was just trying to keep his foot in the church just in case. You can't have it both ways. You have to have it one way. And I wonder sometimes myself, how many people really get it? How many people really see this world for what it is? Whether it be its politics, all the arguments, all the, the debates that go on, uh, gun rights. Mr. Smith had a sermon here my wife was listening to as she was getting ready. Uh, where he was talking about Second Amendment. We have people in the church that get all glandular about the Second Amendment. That's not, that's not the Bible. That's the constitution of man. We're not against somebody having a gun. I happen to own one. But the, the fact is that we don't get caught up in the, the arguments of this world, the ways of this world, and the trends of this world. You know, when people say, well, the world's ahead of the church on this issue, that ought to be a big red flag for everybody. But people get all caught up in some things, and then pretty soon they're at odds with the church, with the ministry, or some other person, and a root of bitterness sets in. I'd like to close with one final scripture here in Revelation, the third chapter, Revelation 3. And you probably know where we're going. Revelation 3 is talking about the Philadelphian Church of God, the Philadelphia era of the church, because these are not just seven churches that existed back then, but they represented stages through which the true church, not the false church, but the true church would go, and you can trace it. And we have a booklet on the subject of God's church through the ages, and I hope that you, if you haven't read it lately, you will read it shows a lot of this history of how the church would go along and then it would go back into apostasy and someone would have to raise it up. It wouldn't entirely, but there was always somebody there that God had chosen to keep it going because it never did cease. The gates of hell would not prevail against it. But in verse 9 of Revelation 3, it says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie, indeed I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere. These people persevere through thick and thin. You know, we've had to persevere through good times. Sometimes it's easier to persevere when there are trials. But when everything is going well, it's easy to let up. But we've had to persevere a lot of things, apostasies, uh, you know, the, the pandemic and all that is going on and all the politics of it all. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. 
So there's a promise there that if you persevere, this group of people, the ones that are doing the will of God, the work of God, God says to those zealous ones that he'll keep us from the hour of trial that will come upon the whole earth. In other words, of tribulation yet to come. Then in verse 11 it says, Behold, I am coming quickly. And here's an admonition for all of us. Hold fast what you have that no one may take your crown. 